Yes, tell us about okay. the 30 seconds. And if we can start the afternoon, se- afternoon session. Uh, we're starting off with, with Andrew. Andrew. Thanks, Michael. Use no introduction. Thank you. It's a great honour to be uh, invited to um, address you. This is the uh, greatest collection of conservative thinkers since Lord Salisbury dined alone. (laughs) (laughs) Might I take you back to uh, a meeting of the Literary Club on the evening of Friday the 7th of April 1775, which we know from Boswell's Life of Johnson took place in a tavern amongst numerous company. Other than Samuel Johnson, the other people we know to have been present were Johnson's friend, the aristocrat Topham Beauclair, another friend of his, Bennett Langton, uh, Sir Joshua Reynolds, and Edward Gibbon. After discussing Addison's supposed lack of a grasp of Italian, the non-appearance of wolves in the poems of Ossian, the differences between the Irish and Erse languages, the effect of singing uh, the effect of singing the ballad Lily Bolero on the <laughs> Glorious Revolution. The conversation got round to the subject of patriotism. In one of his most famous remarks, Johnson suddenly uttered in a strong, determined tone the statement: "Patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel." Now, all Conservatives know well the following sentence, written by Boswell in The Life, though never quoted in the books of quotations, or by the left, which sees patriotism as the mere handmaiden to her bastard sisters' nationalism, hypernationalism, and fascism. What Boswell wrote of Johnson was, quote, but let it be considered that he did not mean a real and generous love of country, but that pretended patriotism which so many in all ages and countries have made a cloak for self-interest. As the conversation continued, Boswell said that certainly all patriots were not scoundrels. Now, this is no more than stating the obvious truth that although dogs have four legs, not every four-legged animal is a dog. So Boswell was asked, not by Johnson, to name an exception, and Boswell named an eminent person whom John Wilson Croker assumes with Edmund Burke, because Boswell often ascribed the adjective eminent to Burke, whom uh, he said we all greatly admired. Johnson's comment on Boswell's statement makes it clear, I think, that his general statement, which has done so much damage over the past two and a half centuries, especially coming from such profound Tory as Johnson, was in fact rooted in the specific, in his particular uh, dislike of Lord North's ministry, which lasted from 1770 for 12 years until 1782. Sir, Johnson said of the person that we can assume to have been Burke, who sat for Bristol as a Rocky and White Whig, I do not say that he is not honest, but we have no reason to conclude from his political conduct that he is honest. Were he to accept a place from this ministry, he would lose that character of firmness which he has. This ministry is neither stable nor grateful to their friends, as Sir Robert Walpole's was. Now, elsewhere in the six volumes of annotations to Boswell's Life of Johnson, edited by Hill and Pohl in the 1930s, it seems clear that Johnson was referring not to patriotism in general, but the false use of the term patriotism as employed by the faction led by John Stuart, 3rd Earl of Butte. Butte's political programme seems solely to have concentrated on trying to win office, and it seems to be of him that Johnson was implying the term scoundrel. So one of the phrases that we all know of Johnson's, which has been used to hang around the neck of anyone advocating a genuine love of country ever since, might have 
been specifically a denunciation of a particular set of unscrupulous politicians rather than the blanket condemnation of patriotism per se. I should now like to jump forward two centuries from Johnson's dangerously all-embracing aphorism from the uh, London Tavern of 1777 to a meeting of the Oakshot Society in Dr John Casey's set of rooms in Gombal and Keys College, Cambridge in the Michaelmas term of my first year as an undergraduate in 1982. Noting that the new generation of Tory undergraduates were pro-American Thatcherite in their leanings as opposed to anti-American followers of Enoch Powell, John Casey asked us whether we would spy for the CIA if a Marxist-Leninist government of the UK left NATO and joined the Warsaw Pact. He asked the question only three years after Tony Benn had held senior cabinet rank, and whilst the trade union movement was fully uh, infiltrated by the Communist Party, so it was not so outlandish an idea as it perhaps sounds today. To those of us who try to argue that spying for the CIA did not constitute treachery against the United Kingdom, John was scathing, shooting down our arguments one by one on constitutional, ethical, moral, legal and every other ground, barring the political. With the related issues of national identity, patriotism and allegiance reappearing strongly since 9-11, I think it worthwhile to try to answer John Casey's conundrum a quarter of a century later, and hopefully with more success than I did when I was a Callow undergraduate. As a reactionary, whose favourite hymn is the one the Church of England has tried to ban on grounds of hyper-nationalism, namely Sir Cecil Spring Rice's sublime, I vow to thee my country, I was naturally disgusted when, during the opening of the 2012 Olympics in August, um, the Lancashire-born pop singer Morrissey compared the national mood to that of Nazi Germany and asked if the country, if Britain, had ever been, quote, has ever been quite so foul with patriotism. If you'd felt that way about the Olympics, with its opening ceremony presenting Britain's greatest achievement as having been the National Health Service, <laughs> God knows how he kept his sanity during the Diamond Jubilee. <laughs> Yet, uh, that reference to Nazi Germany might be used as a springboard to ask a few more questions along the same lines as John Case's in 1982. Were the Stauffenberg plotters traitors when they attempted to assassinate their legally constituted head of state on the 20th of July 1944, the man President Hindenburg had chosen to be Chancellor of Germany under the German constitution as it stood in January 1933, and to whom they had all taken a personal oath of allegiance the following year. In the same conflict, was Charles de Gaulle a traitor when he left France in June 1940 to take up arms against the legally constituted Vichy government of France, as established by a vote of 569 to 80 with 10 abstentions in the National Assembly? Were the 7-7 plotters who killed 52 innocent people on London's public transport system in 2005 also traitors as well as murderers? How do we morally differentiate between Bashar al-Assad using violence to crush a rebellion of his own people today, using every power available to him, and Abraham Lincoln doing exactly the same thing, precisely the same thing, between 1861 and 1865? Are the Syrian Free Army uh, and were the Confederates traitors as well as rebels? With Lincoln, we can argue that the president was duly elected by a democratic constitutional means, a distinction that President Assad doesn't enjoy. Yet in a country that has um, never had much democracy, indeed in a region where, besides Israel and Turkey, and now thanks to President George W. Bush, Iraq and Afghanistan, genuinely representative institutions are otherwise unknown, 
can we really just write off every non-democratic regime in the world as illegitimate and thus not worthy of its citizens' allegiance? If there's no historical tradition of holding meaningful elections in a country, or if, as in Saudi Arabia, those elections don't enfranchise 50% of the population, are we really saying that its leaders automatically and necessarily lack legitimacy and thus the right to expect patriotic allegiance? In his maiden speech of, um, in February 1901, as the Boer War was entering its most vicious phase, Winston Churchill ignored the ancient convention of avoiding contentious subjects and said, if I were a Boer, I hope I should be fighting in the field. The Irish nationalist MPs cheered him, and Joseph Chamberlain commented, that's the way to throw away seats. But it showed that he appreciated that enemies can be patriotic too. If I were an Iranian, I would one day want my country to possess the nuclear bomb, even though obviously not now while it's ruled by Islamic fundamentalist uh, terrorists who continually threaten to use it. Being conflicted about one's identity, where one's patriotism ultimately lies, is as old as the nation-state itself. Even worse has been the suspicion that others might be conflicted when in fact they weren't. Uh, it was a source of um, persecution and discrimination against English Roman Catholics from the Reformation to the mid-19th century and of Jews in many lands throughout history who were assumed to owe other allegiances rather as the Sudeten Germans genuinely did at the time of the Munich crisis. We must therefore get this matter right. <clears throat> I've never really understood the storm of abuse that descended when the English Tory, Norman Tebbett, sought to apply what he called the cricket test of allegiance to British-born West Indians and Pakistanis who continued to support the sports teams of their parents' native lands rather than their own. It'll be interesting to see the psychological reaction of white English-speaking Americans when, around the year two, uh, two, uh, 2050, the USA becomes majority Spanish-speaking. Will Los Estados Unidos have the same levels of allegiance naturally carried over from those who had hitherto pledged allegiance to the same territory but in a different tongue? Britain has nothing like the American Pledge of Allegiance and all attempts to introduce one are subjected to scoffing ridicule. Patriotism is somehow supposed to be imbibed with our mother's milk, even in a country that is taking on many of the same melting pot aspects of the USA and has effectively stopped teaching the kind of history in uh, schools that is needed to inculcate it. There were, I've high hopes that Michael Gove's educational reforms in England and Wales might reintroduce some aspects of narrative history. And we can escape the present situation in which 23% of British teenagers think that Winston Churchill was a fictional character um, and that Sherlock Holmes and Eleanor Rigby were real people. Um, by the way, uh, that's not as bad as the, as the 32% of uh, English teenagers. Uh, this is over 3,000 were polled for this, so this is a representative example. 32% uh, of them believed that the American War of Independence had been won by Denzel Washington. <laughs> we know that the left, especially in academia, considers patriotism and a sense of national allegiance to be a danger, a crime against the United Nations run uni globalism that is their ultimate goal for the planet. As we learn from Roger Kimball's The Fortunes of Permanence, an er text for modern conservatism, in my view, the philosopher Martha Nussbaum mm. uh, warns that patriotic pride is morally dangerous, uh, that Amy Goodman of Princeton believes that it is repugnant 
that students be taught that they are above all citizens of the United States instead of members of what she calls a democratic humanism. And worst of all, Richard Sennett of New York University has denounced the evil of a shared national identity, while inevitably George Lipsitz the University of California states that in recent years refuge in patriotism has been the first re- resort of scoundrels of all sorts. Yet another ignorant misreading of Dr. Johnson's true meaning flung against conservatives. Yet, in fact, it can be shown, as it eloquently has been by David Price Jones in his book uh, Treason of the Heart, that when lack of patriotism is taken to its logical outcome, namely treachery, it can produce myriad forms of deep psychological disorder, but that also it often stems from that and other personality defects too. From Tom Paine to uh, Kim Philby, David shows the profound moral and personal flaws in traitor after traitor, proving how they aren't just nasty pieces of work because they're traitors, but they were also traitors because they were nasty pieces of work. (laughs) Again and again, treachery was not just the result of a belief in a higher loyalty than to the nation-state, such as the rights of man in Paine's case, or Marxism-Leninism in Philby's, but also of the traitor's own narcissism, alienation, perversity, viciousness, inability to feel love, except a love of the act of betrayal itself. David proves how the overlap between traitors and utter shits is simply too (laughs) uniform to be coincidental. The shaded area of the Venn diagram between the two is so vast as almost to overwhelm the two subsets. Yet when we look at some of the people willing to portray the Soviet Union in the Cold War, Oleg Gordievsky, for example, we see a man suffused with love of his country who is moreover personally, personally admirable and is rightly considered today to be a hero. So what conservatives now need, it seems to me, is an overarching philosophy that explains these dichotomies, widens our understanding of why it's right to feel loyalty and patriotism in the West, but also why those who betrayed the USSR or attempted to assassinate Hitler or who are fighting against Assad today are not also traitors, except perhaps in the narrowest and most meaningless of uh, legalistic terms. We need to answer the age-old saw of... Um, when does a terrorist become a freedom fighter? Why are the Minutemen and perhaps even the Stern Gang one thing, while Al-Qaeda and the Shining Path are something quite different? We need, in effect, to answer John Casey's question of a quarter of a century ago, which, as you can see, has troubled me ever since. Moreover, this theory can't simply concentrate on democracy, equality, free speech, human rights, etc. Since people like Julian Assange and the so-called whistleblowers such as Clive Ponting will use that argument against us and will merely come down to the tedious postmodernist rowing over definitions of liberty. The opening sentence of the war memoirs of Charles de Gaulle, who was of course under sentence of death for treason for four years in France between 1940 and 1944, seems to me to offer the key for conservatives looking for an all-embracing theory encompassing the concepts of national identity, patriotism, allegiance and treachery. It explains the reason why Lincoln wasn't a traitor, but also why Jefferson Davis wasn't either. Why Stauffenberg was not a traitor, but why those Britons who went to fight for the Taliban against the forces of the Crown and wound up in Guantanamo Bay were and are, whereas George Washington, who also fought against the forces of the Crown, was not. All my life, wrote de Gaulle, I have had a certain idea of France. This certain idea of the soul of his country existed quite separately from its legal entity. 
It was a concept of Frenchness that couldn't be defined, or at least not easily, but was nevertheless stronger than the votes of the National Assembly as it voted to dissolve the Third Republic in the auditorium of Vichy's Opera House on the 10th of July 1940. De Gaulle's certain idea of France was certainly not rooted in the concepts of democracy and free speech, though, of course, there were uh, tangential aspects of it, but rather in the sacred blood, soil, religion, history, people, and essentially Frenchness of France, the aspects that no other nation had. French exceptionalism was never better put, and it, of course, immediately explains why Pétain and Laval were traitors to the true, real France, while de Gaulle was its paladin. Now, if we extend de Gaulle's concepts to other countries in the world, conservatives will find that it works for us too. I could perfectly well spy for the CIA in a communist Britain in the 1980s, because there is a certain idea of Britain rooted in her blood, soil, history, people, and essential Britishness that would have been effaced had she fallen to an anti-monarchist, atheistic, totalitarian creed like Marxism-Leninism. <clears throat> Klaus von Stauffenberg was legally guilty as charged, but not guilty of betraying a certain idea of Germany, that of Beethoven and Schiller, which we've seen post-1945 as the true Germany. The Declaration of Independence, the US Constitution, Bill of Rights, Federalist Papers, and so on, are the eloquent expression of a certain idea of the United States that absolves the American-born founding fathers from the charge of treachery. Of course, any certain idea has to be deeply rooted in knowledge of a country and its past. Otherwise, it's likely to become impossibly subjective and ultimately meaningless. The 7-7 bombers could argue in our postmodernist multicultural world that their certain idea of Britain had nothing to do with Queen and country and everything to do with Islam and their interpretation of the Quran, and thus, according to their certain idea, their actions were not treacherous. That is, again, why history teaching in schools needs to be central to the curriculum, since only that way can we refute such arguments, and we must therefore support Michael Gove's attempts to return it to its rightful place in it. Oleg Gordievsky, being true to the certain idea of the true Russia, the great soul of Mother Russia, which was waiting to shrug off the communist mantle after three quarters <coughs> of a century imposed on the real Russia. Any brave souls who are today betraying the People's Republic of China are undoubtedly acting in accordance with the certainty that there is something far more ancient and noble in their certain idea of China than is represented by the Chinese Communist Party that attempted to root out Confucianism during the Cultural Revolution. Once one appreciates that a certain idea of a country, an uplifting one, representing its underlying true nature, is the concept to which its inhabitants also owe their allegiance over and above the present-day legal entity, then the rebels against Assad are not traitors, while Major Nidal Hassan, who carried out the Fort Hood shooting, most certainly is. No certain idea of American history, purpose or experience can make his killing of American soldiers anything but an act of treachery to the United States. That's also uh, why, although it's possible to feel allegiance towards a United States of America, if one is an American, it's impossible for anyone to feel genuine loyalty or allegiance to a United States of Europe or United Nations or indeed any other multinational body. Allegiance must be rooted to the nation-state, which since the 1648 Treaty of Westphalia has been the building block. One could feel allegiance to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, as personified by the Habsburg um, Emperor, but not for a soulless entity like the European Union. 
One can have a certain idea for France or Britain or Spain or the United States, but even a new country, possibly like, uh, like Syria or Jordan, but not for a group of countries. No one will be willing to fight and die for the European Union. And even those blue berries who fight and die for, uh, under the name of the United Nations do so with their own country's flags uh, on their shoulders. Part of the certain idea that one has for one's country is that it is indivisible. As George Canning put it at the collapse of the Holy Alliance um, in the 1820s, mankind is back to a healthy state, every nation for itself and God for us all. For all that Charles de Gaulle was clearly a totally impossible human being, he was also a genius of sorts. To adopt Churchill's reference in his maiden speech, uh, if I were a Frenchman, I hope that I would be a Gaullist. The idea of me being a Frenchman is such a... Sorry, I have to cut that line. Um, in his explanation for his, at first sight, treacherous actions in 1940, I see a way for Conservatives to look at the seemingly complex issues of national identity, patriotism and allegiance and appreciate that, with common sense and a profound reverence for the past especially for a country's soul, customs and traditions, we can feel a certain idea of a country to which its citizens must remain true quite apart from what the law might say. So 30 years after he posed the question, I can say to Dr uh, Casey, I would have spied for America because a communist Britain would have betrayed my certain idea of my country. Thank you very much. Thanks, thanks for that excellent paper. That actually gives a lot to talk about. Who wants to start off? John. I'd just like to ask, at what point do you think um, the town becomes a traitor? Gosh, that's a very good question. That's a very good question. Um, uh, he, he, he isn't in, in June 1940, certainly, and yet he is by, um, by 1945, um, by the time he's, uh, he's um, captured and put on trial. Uh, I, you know, it was right to find him guilty. Um, so, and there are a, a whole set along the Via Dolorosa. There are a whole um, set of stations. Um, there's the, uh, of course, the um, the National Assembly voted by such a wide majority to set up something called the French State, of which he was going to be um, uh, leader, and gave him essentially dictatorial powers. So, um, you have you have that moment. You have the moment when and that comes three weeks after the surrender you have the moment when he starts to um, uh, to allow Jews to be shipped off from uh, from the uh, non-occupied non-directly occupied parts of, um, of France uh, the point at which he's offered the chance to go to North Africa and continue the um, the, the the fight, which he turns down. The uh, points later on. I mean, uh, obviously David is the is the real expert of this um, of this period. Uh, but th there is there, there is a, a moment, obviously, also in November 1942, when he does invade, uh, and he continues to stay uh, on as uh, as figurehead. Uh, although by that stage he's starting to lose his marbles, of course. Um, and uh, so I wouldn't like to put a, a date on it, but I, I think I'd be right in saying that in 1940 he's one thing. In 1945, is something quite different. Eight o'clock on May, on May, <laughs> eight on May the 8th, 1942. I mean, when the Germans invade Vichy, he becomes a, a pawn. They are, they, they have him. And uh, at that point, his military attaché comes to um, him and says, we must go. And Bertrand says, no, I'm staying. And the military attaché says, Dieu que nous sommes lâches, ce matin. 
God, how cowardly we are today. And I think, from, you know, I, I, you, you'd argue, I think, that the, uh, the Petanism probably was okay between July the, um, and, and November 42, because it, he was doing what he thought he was doing, which was interposing his person with, between France and the Germans. But after he's just become a German puppet, no, then he's a Roger. Yeah, that's the day. Mm-hmm. Well, just following up on what John was asking, I, um, it, it, I suppose it's too simplistic to say. I mean, you've said uh, blood, soil, and the idea, the nation state is, uh, uh, stands behind this identity that um, we can pledge allegiance to or have allegiance to. But in the end, isn't it really something, even if it's indefinable, and I think it is indefinable, but isn't there, can't, don't we have to say that this is right? And the other other is wrong. It's kind of the cannibal test, you know. Uh, uh, cannibalism is just the wrong thing to do. And uh, or again, we to mention Napier again. It's a bad thing to do to burn widows. It may be your custom, but uh, um, the English did good by going to places like India and stamping out sooty and Africa and stamping out cannibalism. Um, but what what is the uh, it, it's I think there's an analogy between that and political treachery. It's if, if the regime for which you are working is evil, then uh, it's treachery. But how you would how you define that, I don't know. Well, that's what I was trying to define in my paper um, with this concept that um, there is something separate from the from the legal entity of a country um, and. Um, and your, your use of the word evil is a very good one here because that, of course, is uh, part of, um, of religion and, and moral guidance, the point at which um, you are, uh, a country becomes something that it's your duty to betray rather than your duty to fight for. Uh, Ken? Um, two questions, I think. Does, do the British solve any of these problems by distinguishing between monarchy and uh, executive power? Uh, And secondly, (coughs) I'm interested in the relation between virtue on the one hand and equality or superiority on the other. And I suspect that you are more virtuous when you feel superior to other people. That is to say, I'm too proud to beg or I'm too proud to to take a bribe. Now, is allegiance to a certain data, whatever it is, is that a form of superiority justifying a sense of virtue? Yes, well, with the first question, there is an enormous uh, advantage in having a crown to which you owe an oath of allegiance, to which yeah. police officers and, and judges and politicians and others um, actually take an oath. Armed forces, obviously, being a classic example to that. Um, of course, it didn't stop Stauffenberg from trying to kill Hitler after having uh, taken an oath. But nonetheless, the fact that um, the, the, the huge difference, of course, being that the uh, Queen is not um, an active head of state in the way that the Führer was, and, right. the, and so you're taking an, uh, an oath of allegiance to a, to a concept, to, a, to an idea, um, rather like your presidents do in America to the Constitution on the day of the inauguration, and that is um, a far more um, powerful thing, it strikes me, than to um, than, than the um, uh, than owing allegiance to an individual, to a to a 
dictator in, uh, in Hitler's case, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I think that is a helpful one. As far as the idea of having a, um, a concept of ruling, of virtuous um, ruling um, ethic, um, yes, that too, I think, is, uh, is, is, is epicentral to all of this. The, um, the reason that uh, for much of the history of the British Empire it was run by people who were... Um, take the Indian civil service, for example, who were self-consciously very much the best of their generation, the best intellectually, certainly the best. They used to have to take exams for the Foreign Office in the 1890s that were impossibly difficult. Um, and, uh, and so as a result, they created a ruling elite which had as its, at the core of its ethic, the idea that they were um, servants, genuine servants of the, of the Indian subcontinent, say. And as a result of that, you had a um, group of people who uh, really did uh, rule in the best interests of the, uh, of the people of India. Um, and they did something that they were individually fabulously and understandably proud of. And again and again, the opportunities for corruption must have been enormous in, uh, in the Indian civil service, and yet yeah. there's virtually no example of it. They went back after a lifetime service, uh, when they were, especially those in the financial departments, you know, capable of taking decisions with, of, of covering millions, tens of millions of rupees, and then they went back and retired to their little two-up, two-up down in Cheltenham, and, uh, and lived out the rest of their lives with an OBE. Good example, yeah. Uh, Daniel? Um, I'm glad you brought up the case of Stauffenberg because that brings us to the issue of military loyalty, which is a very particular and very important kind. Um, I know a little bit about, about the case of Stauffenberg, um, so please bear with me while, while I, I explain a little bit about it. He, of course, uh, had not only sworn an oath, as all German officers did, uh, to a personal one, to, to the Fuhrer. Um, of course, it was part of the Nazi ideology to reintroduce what they saw as the sort of early Germanic uh, kind of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of Wagnerian kind of loyalty, you know, to your lord, and uh, and that that was what they hoped to inculcate into the into the armed forces. Uh, but not only that, he'd actually fought uh, very bravely and lost an eye and, uh, you know, been very severely injured uh, fighting Hitler's war, as had most of his co-conspirators. Um, none of them was brave enough to do what he did. He was the only one who was prepared to break the oath, and he didn't do it lightly. The others all had endless sort of qualms and conflicts of conscience and, and, and so on. Um, another aspect of this is that, uh, of course, None of these people really had been loyal to the Weimar Republic. Their, their loyalty was not to the Republic, it was to something more abstract, which they would have probably called the Reich, which is an untranslatable word, really, meaning both kingdom and empire. Uh, and they didn't necessarily mean the Third Reich, they just meant the Reich. Um, so that was what they thought they were fighting for, and they were prepared to fight. But when they saw what Hitler was doing, and that this was completely incompatible with their idea of what the Reich was. They were prepared to rebel. Now, where did that come from? Um, in the case of Schaffenberg, he was a member of a little uh, group called the Stefan Georger Kreis, um, the followers of this uh, very strange poet 
uh, Georgia. And uh, Schauffenberg actually tended Georgia as in his last days when he died in 1932, <coughs> having emigrated from Germany uh, because he disapproved of the Nazis. Um, so there was a sort of strange, mystical, literary, uh, and spiritual uh, uh, sort of allegiance to something which the Georga followers called das Neue Reich, the new, the new kingdom, which, which was to be a more spiritual and uh, not materialistic and not, uh, not actually very democratic. I they weren't very keen on democracy. So it was all that going on as well. And when Schaufenberg was shot by the Nazis... There are two different versions of what he said, his last words. One is that he dies saying, Es liebe das heilige Deutschland, holy German, uh, a, a very sort of ancient and, and perhaps Christian notion of, 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 the state, of the nation. The other is, Es liebe das geheime Deutschland, um, secret Germany, because that was the name that the Georgia followers gave to their little their little sort of uh, coterie. We don't know which he said because there were only a few witnesses. But what, what I want to get to with, with all this is even today, the Germans feel very, very uncomfortable with what Stauffenberg did. And the reason is that the Nazis had contaminated your, your... You made the very point about blood and soil. That was the idea they had appropriated. So Germans today can't really enter into the mind of a man like Stauffenberg at all. And that is why for so many years after the war he, was, he and his family were uh, completely ostracized even by Democrats. And today what we have is what they call Verfassungspatriotism. So pay, pay, the patriotism of the constitution. Loyalty only to, uh, to a constitution. Which for an American uh, means a great deal more than it does for a German. And this I think explains why the Germans have today virtually abandoned patriotism and are seeking to, to persuade the rest of Europe uh, to owe its allegiance to the European Union, which, as you rightly say, will never work. But it's a huge problem, isn't it? That here is this nation that has, as it were, turned its back on the kind of patriotism you're talking about and is seeking to impose this more abstract form of patriotism on the whole of Europe. I couldn't agree more. And the... Uh um, another problem with Stauffenberg, of course, is that, um, is that had he succeeded, um, he and many of the other plotters wanted to hang on to um, the Sudetenland and possibly bits of, um, of Poland too. And so, uh, uh, and he made anti-Semitic remarks. You know, so he, he, he isn't, I'm not talking about a Germany that is based on Stauffenbergism at all. No. Of course, it's got no. to be something more... Um, something different to that. But it does strike me that the way in which uh, Germany has... I mean, Germany started, or was involved, closely involved with, and usually started, five wars in the 75 years after 1864. And... Um, and since 1945, it has been exemplary in, it, uh, in terms of its capitalism. And its, I mean, part of that, I believe, could be put down to Bonner Harris. But um, uh, the other part, really, is um, can, uh, it must be put down to, um, to what we were talking about, about the concept of the, um, um, of the uh, loyalty to the, to the Constitution. The only drawback um, is, again, as you say, that uh, they want to draw other people into this into this um, uh, concept with regard to the extension of the European Union, which is 25 countries now, 
Uh, each it doesn't each, have a proper constitution. It doesn't have a, it doesn't have a constitution. It hasn't got a, a budget that anyone's agreed to in the last decade either. But no. nonetheless, when it comes to loyalty, each of those people in each of those um, post-Treaty of Westphalia countries, the, the, you know, even if it's uh, Greek, Greece and Spain, Italy and cases in the next background, should feel their loyalty to the to the, each individual country, um, and. Um, and the idea, and the higher idea of that, uh, of that country. Uh, David. Well, I, I can, of course, um, greatly recommend uh, the books mentioned by Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I would like to um, bring out what I think is the, the cru- crucial thing about the nation state, which is its link to democracy. I don't think you can have democracy without the nation state, and it wasn't a coincidence. The communism went to an international doctrine. And it isn't a coincidence, it seems to me, that the Muslims today also go to an international doctrine and wish to do away with the nation state. And I think we, we touch here um, on, on a, a very important root of anti Americanism. America is clearly a nation state, and Israel is also clearly a nation state. And the animus against those two are in level, first of all, by, by the old Soviet Union, taken up, secondly, um, by the next international movement of the, of the Ummah. And the, the flaw in the nation state is obviously its treatment of minorities. But after the Second World War, that's all been, or largely all been sorted out. Um, and I think I don't feel any embarrassment defending the nation state. The, the, the book that um, Andrew did mention was in fact attacked um, simply because it was, I am obviously defending the nation state. But the link with democracy it seems to me to be absolutely crucial. Any more questions? Uh, Jeremy. Uh, I, I thought that was a really interesting paper, an important paper. Um, link with democracy, well. <clears throat> I mean, you could take the view in, in, um, in the 19-teens that the British Imperial Parliament contains one proto-nation in Ireland, um, so it's a bit more complicated. Possibly America in 1861 contains two proto-nations. I think, I mean, these are, I think, actually quite complicated issues. I was just thinking for a second about the current confrontation between China and Japan. In each case, there are powerful senses of national identity and no doubt patriotism, but I don't think anybody would suggest China as a democracy. So I I think there are complexities here. I do think there are complexities. Treason itself, and if you go back into British history, um, as David's book brilliantly shows, treason has on the whole, on the whole there are exceptions, been something one has identified with the left for the last 200 years. But I suppose if you take it further back, you have, and this of course helps to provide the complexity with Dr. Johnson, who of course was a non-juror, the fact is that there were people in Britain from 1688 right through the 18th century, and therefore in America as well, claiming that the rightful monarch was the Jacobite monarch. Um, I mean, it's a much, 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 and of course, you know, if you want to play forward, there are other analogous things that one can think about in some other countries. So I think it's, I mean, I think what Andrew's done, that's a brilliant account of something that deserves almost an entire book, you know, because you know, it really is important, this, as how one defines it. But I think some of the historical background is complex. Just, just leave it like that. Okay. Any final...
from that. So. No, no, I, I, I'm, I'm very pleased I wasn't monstered. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we just put in a good word for Tom Payne. <laughs> no, <laughs> he's a good writer. And he was unstable. Tom Payne was a very unstable individual. I think We Americans and, and, and Brits have got on so well at this conference. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what, what Johnson's really thinking about is those people who called themselves patriots, and those people who called themselves patriots were, on the whole, radicals who um, were, as Johnson correctly says, and as Andrew's right, were really highly irresponsibly throwing forward what we would call a false patriotism against what, as Andrew says, I mean, Johnson would have seen himself as a true patriot in part because of his strong commitment to the Church of England. And he was more committed to the Church of England than he was to the Hanoverian dynasty. And he would have seen, and he would have argued, if you've got Johnson here, he would have argued that is the fundamental nature of British cultural and, and identity. And of course, one of the real tragedies in British public life over the last few decades, as a number of Conservative commentators have pointed out, is how the Church of England has completely lost any sense of its national role, and indeed has lost a lot of its moral per purchase uh, more generally. Actually, Jim Bennett would argue, and does argue, in fact, that um, England and America, Britain and America, are not nation-states, but state nations, that the nature of their patriotism is somewhat different. And uh, the result, one of the results was that you could have a proto-nation like Ireland for a long time within the UK, and it could have gone on indefinitely, by the way, in different circumstances. And what, where America has been lucky is that until very recently, all its emigration came from different sources. So they, they had to assimilate into the existing American nation. Now we have a situation in which immigration is much more skewed towards a single source, and there is becoming to develop in America what you could argue is a kind of anti-nation, an alternative America, which, you know, when the tipping point comes, it will be interesting to see how the constitutional arrangements work. Yeah, Th thanks.